Welcome to the Multi-Passionaire Podcast. My name is Olivia Martin, and this is episode 11 of the Multi-Passionaire. In today's episode, Rithka and I talk about the process of co-founding her fashion company, Sani, alongside her sister. Sani was founded in 2017 and provides ease and access to South Asian clothing with modern designs. Earlier this year, multiple of their designs were featured on the fashion website, Rent the Runway. Rithika is currently studying fashion at NC State. We're going to be talking about starting with an idea and building it into a company, aspects of being a young entrepreneur, and the process of creating a fashion brand. All right, so I'm with Rithika, and we're going to kick off with a question that I ask each guest, and it's the million-dollar question. So what's an idea or passion that you've had and you've always wanted to embark on, but you haven't done so yet? Hmm. That's a good one. (laughs) Um, So it's funny you say that because I think ever since, even before starting Sani, I, my sister, both me and my sister have like a notes page in which the randomest ideas that come to us, we usually write them down, right? Like it could be when I was like 12 and when I was in India and I saw how they put luggage on top of cars and didn't have anything to cover them that I was like, they should make like a shower cap for cars as a luggage. Um, And I think as I've gone along, like if you looked at that notes page, it's gotten longer and longer, but something I thought about slash saw the other day that I thought was like a cool idea was, um, essentially since the world is like mo- movie theaters are kind of gone, right? Like no one's right. really going to the movies anymore. So almost bringing it to you in the sense that like Netflix and all these streaming services should have an option to where like, if I'm watching a rom-com movie one night, they would deliver me a box of like chocolate, popcorn, drinks, like to accompany my movie and kind of have like a yeah. subscription thing going on there to where it's like almost experience at your home. Um, I think that could be really cool if someone did that right. Uh, that was just an idea we were talking about actually the other day. That's so brilliant. And I feel like that could totally like explode into the market mm-hmm. because kind of tying that into like drive-in movie theaters, I love going to those, but you can barely find them anywhere. Yeah. So That'd be super interesting. Yeah. That, that's a really cool idea. If anyone does it, let me know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. So I want to dive into how you created Sani. So you started Sani essentially because of your own fashion needs. So you and your sister. Was there like specific instances that kind of motivated you to creating the company? Yeah. So I think what really sparked it was when Nikki and I were going to an Indian wedding in California. And it happened kind of last moment. Um, In the past, we've had time to either go to India and get our outfits or our grandmother would ship something over here for us to wear. And it was at a time in which we're three sisters. um, So I have another sister too. We started caring more about what we wore, right? Like when you were younger, you would just wear whatever your mom told you and call it a day. So we were going to this wedding, started caring more about what we wore and we had to shop domestically because um, we didn't have time to go shop in India and it was getting kind of hard for my grandma to do it herself. So we went to Edison, New Jersey, Atlanta, Georgia, Charlotte, and this was just to find outfits for a wedding, right? This wasn't to like do anything else. Yeah. And what we saw in the markets were a lot of outdated, gaudy, flashy outfits and nothing that really reflected 
our style, which I think was kind of combining our Western sensibilities and our Indian heritage in just the right mix. So after we discovered that, we realized that there was this kind of gap in this market um, for first and second generation South Asian Americans to access the best of South Asian fashion in the U.S. So it all started with that wedding we were going to, but it it was funny because for that entire wedding, we it was a process to just get something as simple as what you were going to wear. So yeah, that's what really started it all. Yeah, and that's like such a trek to like go to all yeah. of those states to get an outfit. Mm-hmm. Like, and think about how much time you probably spent. I don't know if that was over like a few days or yeah. a week or who knows longer, but that's really awesome. You use that to kind of propel and like fuel the idea you came up with. Yeah, and to give a little bit of context, I should have said this earlier. So basically Indian weddings are multiple days. So it wasn't just one outfit. Each of us were looking for three outfits because we would have to have an outfit for every single day. So it made it a little harder even then, but I should have said that in the beginning to clarify that it wasn't just three outfits and we were done. Yeah, that's something I did not know. So now I know that. And that also is even more outfits you had to look for, like you're saying. So yeah, (laughs) that's definitely something that you kind of saw that idea and the niche needed for that and then Mm -hmm. turn that into like a company. So you're a fashion major Mm -hmm. at NC State. So what kind of made fashion interested to you? Yeah, it's funny because I never thought I was going to be a fashion major, right? If you talk to me in high school, I was very much on this computer science path, actually. So I had done code with Clossy. I had done Girls Who Code. I interned at Amazon. I thought I was going to go into a very tech-related major, whatever that may be. But I fell in love with fashion when I started Sani. And I know that doesn't usually happen to people, but before Sani, fashion for me was just making sure I looked good, right? I never had this feeling to like flip through pages of Vogue or to go to New York Fashion Week. But once I got into it, I kind of fell in love with how cool the industry is. And that's what really convinced me to look into fashion programs um, around the US. And when I came across states, I visited states and it had such a big fashion and tech focus. Um, And I was like, wait, this is kind of combining what I was already thinking about in a really, really cool way. So when I saw that, it just made sense. And I saw a place for Sonny to grow. I saw a place for me to grow personally. And now I'm here. (laughs) Yeah. So kind of bridging that interest with fashion tech, have you worked alongside, I guess, some of the components for Sonny, like creating the website or you're working alongside the photographers and like Mm -hmm. the pieces of that? Yeah, so Sonny is a two-man team, my sister and I. Really? Yes, we have hired like freelancers in the past, have different consultants, that kind of thing, but we don't have any other full-time employees. So when you're saying all these little things like working with a photographer, helping with the website, that is all us. No Um, way. Yeah, so I mean, it's funny because... As an entrepreneur, I've learned that you have to take on a lot of roles. And at a certain point, 
I thought that would be very overwhelming, but I love it because I'm not doing the same thing every day. And I think I would get bored if I did the same thing every day. So some days, like you're saying, I am a photographer and I'm sitting in my living room taking flat lays of our new loungewear sets. And then other days, um, me and my sister are on Shopify trying to figure out why something's not showing up correctly or if the user experience is really seamless so that people can get from a product they like to a good check out. Um, so yeah, it's definitely been interesting to wear all those hats, but I think it's also been really fun. That's so awesome. That's like something I wanted to talk about to see, like, have you had other people on your team, but it's just you too. Yeah. And yeah. that's really like remarkable though. Cause a lot of companies, once they start to kind of gain more exposure, they start to kind of build up the team. But mm-hmm. also with that, I was speaking with a friend like a couple days ago, you kind of lose control in that. So with it's just you two, you kind of have more control and say and kind of like just influence into what you're creating. Mm -hmm. Exactly. After you established the idea for Sony and you got your micro grant from the NC Idea Foundation, what were some of the initial components you had to kind of start out with to build the business? Mm. Yeah, so... I, if I remember correctly, I think the micro grant was actually a couple months after we launched, but in the months, even before we got the micro grant. So the way we did it is we created a collection of 15 pieces, all in our sizes. Cause we thought, okay, if this doesn't work out, we have clothes for days, like whatever. <laughs> um, and when I say like created pieces, it wasn't as simple as that, um, that involved going to India, finding a manufacturing partner, which is a headache, and sitting with them, picking out all the fabrics, picking out all the trims, figuring out fit, figuring out drape, all that kind of stuff. And so that was like the first initial thing that we did. And we were naive entrepreneurs (laughs) and had this preconceived notion that if we created these pieces, took some nice pictures, put them up on Instagram, they would sell out did not happen whatsoever (laughs) um and we really realized that to convince people that they should trust our brand they had to feel the clothes they had to try on the clothes they had to get to know us and we honestly should have seen that because we were selling these clothes between a 300 and 600 price point right for a brand you don't know you're not going to sit there and just buy it blindly via instagram or online so in the beginning Um, After that first collection, we saw a little bit of success with that. Once we started to do more in-person things, we really focused on the in-person ground game, especially along the East Coast, because we wanted to get our name out. And the best way to do that was to go where people already were. And once we got the micro grant, that was a way for us to hold our first fashion show. So we held it in... Oh, I can't remember the year now. I want to say November of 2018 or 2019. Okay. Um, And basically it was in Raleigh um, and we partnered with a nonprofit, Kieran. um, And we had a lot of people from the community who are our models um, and the show sold out. And it was a really, really big success. And I would say that was like, when we started to realize that we were really growing our name in North Carolina, right? Like people knew who we were here. So that was up until the micro grant, kind of the development. Obviously there's a little bit of holes in that 
journey, but yeah, that's, that's what was the initial part of Sani. Yeah. And I was kind of reading up on the business and you started, like you were saying, the in-person events. So kind of just building the framework from North Carolina. And then is that kind of where you launched the website or did you kind of start by word of mouth and then kind of outsource it from there? Yeah. So after we realized the Instagram thing was a fail, (laughs) um, we created our website within, I think like a month or so. Okay. Um, And so even when people, sometimes people would come to these events and they would be like, I don't have a, like a need for an outfit right now, but I'll keep you in mind for my next event. And then that's when the website came in handy, right? Because then they had already seen the clothes, they had seen the quality. So they felt a little bit more comfortable making that online purchase. So right off the bat, I think after our first month, we had the website up and going. That's awesome. So I kind of want to talk about the actual like clothing pieces. So do you outsource them from India? Is that where they're like manufactured? This has kind of changed since we've made this transition from formal wear to more lounge wear. But for the formal wear, at least how it started was um, Nikki and I would design all the pieces. And what that means is like we would go to India knowing we wanted, let's say, like 15 langas with this cut, with this style. We were looking for this fabric. And then it was about going to the markets and picking out all those specific things, right? And the markets are huge. Like I'm talking a madhouse full of fabrics and you're just like digging, um, trying to find something. And so from there, we would pick out everything from the fabric. Say if we were using a border on the dupatta, we would pick that out. Um, If there was a specific button we wanted to use, we would pick that out. Any like applique work we wanted to use, that was all handpicked. And then we would go to our manufacturing partner and kind of talk them through, this is what we're thinking, this is what we have, this is what we want to do. And so I would say, especially in the beginning, our design process was really fabric focused because often when we got to the market, it's not like we would find the perfect fabric for what we envisioned before. So we would really go off of, if this fabric caught my eye, I'm going to figure out what to do with it. And I should mention, these are all dead stock fabrics we were using. So we weren't um, like, we were trying to be a little bit more sustainable in the sense that we weren't ordering fabric, but already using what was readily available. So that was kind of the formal wear process. And we did that for pretty much every collection and all the pieces then got made in India and then shipped over to us in the US. That changed a lot when we did a remote collection, designed a remote collection recently with our loungewear. So with our loungewear, it was 100% remote. We designed it all here and we were just communicating with our manufacturing partner in India. So all this market shopping did not exist. It was more like they would send us a page full of fabric swatches and we would just be sitting there trying to like feel it from... (laughs) small piece and imagine what it would be like on a full garment and that was basically what we did for this most recent collection and I think that's what we're going to have to do going forward as well. That's super interesting I bet it's very tough because at least for me whenever I want to buy something I have to feel it out I have to imagine what it would look like I have to figure out where I'm going to wear it so there's so many like just brainstorming like pieces you have to think about so Just to provide a little bit more background information, what are like the traditional formal clothings that are usually worn at like weddings or just loungewear or kind of just a normal like day to day? 
Yeah. So in the beginning, what we are creating and what people typically wear to Indian weddings were langas, anarkalis, um, and then a couple other styles, but those were our main two. So a langa is um, a skirt paired with a blouse and a dupatta, which is like the long scarfs you see. And so you usually wear this type of outfit for the reception or the sangeet, which is another event in an Indian wedding. And then anarkalis are long flowy gowns. And they're also paired with the dupatta, which is that same long scarf again. So in the beginning, we were primarily doing langas and anarkalis. We had some other styles in there. Like we had a couple saris, we had a couple dhoti um, outfits. And basically those are just all, so in India, it's really cool because every region has their own styles. They have their own way of wearing different things. They have their own fabrics. They have their own embroideries. Um, so say if you wore a lenga and you were draping your dupatta, the way I draped my dupatta could be completely different than the way another person draped their dupatta because maybe they were from another part of India in which they traditionally drape it like this. Um, so there's a lot of variance in the different styles you wear to Indian weddings and also the different styles that are just in the market and what you'll see. And for now, we kind of switched that up completely with our most recent collection. We did not do formal wear, um, obviously, because of the way the world is now, but we created a loungewear set. And so it's a crop. I'm actually wearing mine right now. Um, oh, that's so cool. A short sleeve top with elastic um, pants. And so for this one, it was little details that we paid attention to. So on the top I'm wearing, there's a hidden button closure. So you don't see the buttons. There's piping along the sleeves and along the pants. And the pants have a flat front waistband. So basically the elastic's just in the back. So in the front, it just looks like a regular waistband. And there's a lot of other cool features. Like we use an embroidery. This isn't a print on our pajamas. So that's kind of the styles we were creating. And this is the most recent style we've created. That's super neat. And kind of just seeing that, like there's so much art that goes into it. And kind of just the preparation, the brainstorming for the ideas, and then the execution. So I guess another question would be is, how long does it usually take for you to come up with these collections? It definitely depends on the collection. But I'll say for our most recent collection, we started the process in, I would say around May, June time. And when I say the process, just even thinking, what do we want to do? And we didn't release it until I think November um, or end of October, early November. And that was not what we had in mind. Um, <laughs> but what was going on too is it's not even about how long it takes us to ultimately come up with the idea, but we were having a lot of delays with our manufacturing partner. And with all the COVID shutdowns coming in and all the shipping delays, like extended out the process even more. But I would say for a typical collection, we would, so say if we were doing a fall collection, we would start planning um, at the beginning of summer, but I would give it anywhere from three to four months. Wow. So I guess you both design these, like you're saying it's a two-man team. Mm -hmm. 
what are the kind of tools that you have to go along with to actually start with the idea and then finish with a clothing item? Yeah. So usually it starts off with me and my sister just talking at each other and having random ideas. Like I had, I was driving to Raleigh the other day and I was like, I had so many ideas in the car, just like while <laughs> I was listening to music. Um, so I was sitting there like recording voice memos of my ideas <laughs> for products. Um, but it usually starts somewhere with that. And then we're usually either inspired by a certain style, a certain thing um, that we then build upon and we'll create a mood board or just a simple board on Pinterest. And then from there, it's about perfecting the style, the fabric, the fit, the embroidery for using embroidery, and then really coming up with this product on paper at least for this outfit that's how we did it and then sending it to our manufacturing partner and seeing what they think what's going to go on with that them sending us fabric samples back us looking at the fabric samples them sending us embroidery swatches back (laughs) us looking at the embroidery swatches and it's just it's very iterative so we're constantly getting stuff from them. We're constantly approving it and we're constantly making changes on our side too. But it all starts when just maybe there's something we want to build upon and we create that mood board. And from there, it kind of flourishes, I guess you could say. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I'm sure it's a lot of like behind the scenes because whenever you see at least a clothing item, you're kind of like, wow, that's super awesome. I'm sure it took a lot of time, but like there's so many more pieces Mm -hmm. behind that. Definitely. So what are some of the future goals that you have for Sani? So I think one thing that we've always stayed true to ever since we started Sani was that our mission was to increase the visibility of South Asian craftsmanships and techniques although the world is changing a lot and our goals have completely changed for sure, I think we're always going to stay true to that mission. So whatever goals we have in mind, we'll stay true to that mission. And what that means, at least for right now, that's having Sani in mainstream platforms in which like maybe normal people wouldn't see like South Asian embroidery and techniques and be like, oh, I realize that's a South Asian technique. Like that's I didn't know that before. So we want to be on platforms you don't normally see that kind of stuff on. We want to be in publications you don't normally see that in. We want this craftsmanship and techniques to be celebrated. We want people to know the context behind wearing them. So that's going forward what we really want to do with our brand and Sonny Voice, I guess you could say. Yeah, and that's really awesome to kind of have that goal for the future. And it kind of goes into the art of making clothes because you can obviously buy things from certain chains such as like Forever 21 or like all those like fast-paced fashion companies, but they don't really represent the craftsmanship like you're saying and just the work, the designs, and it just kind of shows the differentiation between what routes of clothing you can kind of choose and support. So that's super awesome just to kind of have that goal for the future. Yeah. So when Sony was started in the early stages, you did a lot of pop-ups. Would Sony ever have like a physical storefront in the future? Mm, yeah, so we've talked about this and I think Nikki and I have both come to the conclusion that we would never want to have a physical storefront, but the pop-up model we love. So we would definitely be interested in maybe doing like a two-month pop-up in 
Manhattan. So that like we're there for a long time, but I think we just feel like we can do as much without having a physical store. Um, and that's like not a necessity in today's day and age. But I think we would love to get back to pop-ups whenever the time comes. Yeah, that would be really cool to see like throughout like the major cities in the U.S. So starting a business young can oftentimes be intimidating. What are some of the ways that you kind of combat the notion that age is a limiting factor, but it's really advantageous? Mm, Yeah, you said that so well. (laughs) Um, So... Okay, I'm going to hit on the first part about it being a limiting factor. So it's kind of funny to say that because initially when we were starting, right, we were having these pop-ups where I was talking to brides who were getting married and they were talking (laughs) to me about what outfits they should pick, like um, different parts of their wedding, like different design questions. And I knew all the stuff, right, when it came to the cool design stuff, like I knew that to a T, but I always had this imposter syndrome, right? Because I was 17 or 18 years old telling this like 27-year-old woman about <laughs> what she should wear to her wedding, right? Like when I like didn't even think about my wedding like that ever before. Yeah. So I think what I learned in that case where I felt like my age was limiting me was that I kind of just had to fake it till I make it, Right. Yeah. They don't know how old I am. Like they're, they're <laughs> not going to read into it. So why am I reading into it? Um, so from then on, I kind of just tried to be more confident. I didn't let that hold me back. And I didn't care. Like, yeah, I was 10 years younger. Like I have opinions that are good and I should give them my opinions. Doesn't matter how old I am. And then when it came to using age to my advantage, what I've learned is people are 20 times more likely to help you out when you're younger in college, um, building a business and there's 10 times more opportunities out there, right? Like you don't have pitch competitions as much in the real world. Um, you don't have professors you can go to for advice 24 seven. Um, you don't have great entrepreneurship programs who are hosting accelerators specifically for NC state students. So in that case, my age has come very, very much in handy, but there's always this side of sometimes I look at it as a bad thing. Sometimes I look at it as a good thing, but at the end, I just have to use it correctly in both scenarios. Yeah. And also the beauty of starting like a business in your twenties is like, it's okay if you fail at some things, like Mm -hmm. you're so young and your life is just like, it's beginning. Like the opportunities are kind of like limitless from here. So that's really awesome. Being that you and your sister co-founded Sani, how is the responsibility kind of divided up between both of you? Yeah. So it's funny. I feel like I should say this because I, I start everything with it's funny. I'm sorry <laughs> about that. <laughs> but when we were starting Sani, I was very much under the notion that it was just going to be a side passion project, right? And yeah. if I'm completely honest with you, I kind of looked at it as just a little bit of a resume booster before college. (laughs) And so I wasn't in it as much as I wish I was, right? I was in high school. I was on the tennis team. I was senior class president. I was involved with so much other stuff. And I think my priorities were always all over the place. So in the beginning, I had a, a big role in it, but 
not nearly as much as I do right now. And I would say in the beginning, it was a lot of me just helping with design, helping with photo shoots. But Nikki was sitting here doing most of everything, like getting us an NC idea grant, like being the one to find the pop-ups, that kind of thing. And then I don't know when it hit me that like, this isn't a passion project anymore. Maybe when Nikki was continuing to go with it and was like, no, this is going to be big. You have to believe me. Like it's going to be big. (laughs) Um, But it hit me and slowly I became more and more involved. And I would say today the way our roles are split, they, they overlap like crazy, right? Like it's not, he only does some stuff. I only do some stuff but I'm definitely more on the creative design side and she's definitely more on the strategic operations side. Yeah, that's really funny how it kind of just took a little bit of time to kind of realize, have that realization of this is going to be huge and like kind of just a year from now, it's going to be even bigger. So that's super awesome. Fingers crossed. Is it challenging to like be in business with your family? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Like, are you guys both perfectionists where sometimes it's kind of like, no, this needs to be this color and yeah. So growing up, my dad is an entrepreneur and he runs a business with his seven brothers and sisters. So no way. Yeah. So I kind of grew up seeing families in business together, right? Like I saw the way he worked with his brothers and sisters And I will say they did such an amazing job of not making one person feel like they did more or deserve more, right? Like it didn't matter how much work everyone did. Each person got the same share of the pie. Um, And they also did a good job of stepping in, say, if something was happening with one person, another person would be there for them. And so I think when I grew up around that, I kind of saw that and it was making an impression on me that I didn't realize. So when we got into the business, like that was always unconsciously something that we made sure we tried to do. But in terms of us like butting heads and both of us being perfectionists, yes. That happens a lot. (laughs) Um, And it's funny because I think it happens to each other's strengths, right? So I definitely am stronger when it comes to um, like social media. And when Nikki's talking about this caption she wants to use for a story or for a post, I'm like, oh, no, that's not going to (laughs) work. Like, just give me the phone. Like, give it to me right now. Like, I do not like that. But then say if we're writing something for a business proposal and we're talking about Um, like market value or like differentiation or something like that. And I'm typing something, Nikki will be the one to be like, oh no, I hate how that sounds. Like, give it to me, give it to me. That sounds so bad. So as much as we're both perfectionists, I think it works well because we're both perfectionists in different areas. So we balance each other out. Yeah. And that kind of works out like perfectly to your advantage because one person has the strengths in that and then the other person has the strengths. So then it kind of just fits like a glove perfectly. So that's really cool. So creating a fashion brand comes with a bit of work. Back to kind of the process for creating the pieces. Do you have to like graphically design them or do you do it on paper? And then you kind of communicate that to the manufacturer? Like I'm trying to really just dive into how you kind of build the idea and then bring that to life to the clothing. Yeah, so I hate to say this, but it changes and it's changed for every collection, right? Our first collection portfolio was a PowerPoint. Mm 
And that was also us being naive, not understanding what a design portfolio and what something like that looks like. Um, now we do a lot on Procreate. And so we'll usually sketch things out on there. And we use that as like our production sketch for our factories, that kind of thing. When it comes to what we do on our side and how that gets conveyed to our manufacturing partners, it's usually a combo of us drawing something out, showing them a sample or showing them a picture even, um, like say if I was showing them like something I saw on Pinterest that looked like this, like I would show them that Pinterest picture and like outline it saying, this is the kind of embroidery I want, but I want to change this, that, and this. So it just depends, but I think we've learned a lot about how it's not a PowerPoint anymore. Yeah. That's for sure. We're still learning about the best ways to convey our ideas into the final product. Right. And then it's going to be a little bit different because you're doing it all remote now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right. That's awesome. So earlier this year, some of your pieces were featured on Rent the Runway. Mm -hmm. What was that experience like? That was so pivotal for us. A very, very important moment. And it's funny because that moment was almost a year and a half in the making. So we had started talking to them and... The way the conversation started was actually when Nikki and I had listened to the How I Built This podcast, um, one of my favorites, and Jen Hyman's episode um, was one we listened to. And in her episode, she talked about how for Rent the Runway, the way she got DVF on her platform was by cold calling her and just reaching out for her, telling her about the platform and why she thinks that DVF should be on it. So we kind of took that as inspiration and we cold emailed her. Uh, and it's funny because we had no idea what her email was, right? But we knew it had to be something at Rent the Runway. So we were over here doing Jen at Rent the Runway, Jen Hyman, <laughs> Hyman.Jen. And we BCC'd so many combinations that we could think of. And she responded and she was like, yeah, let's talk about this and let's figure this out. And so that was basically the first thing that started the conversation. And from there, it kept going and going. There were a bunch of roadblocks along the way. And then in February, it premiered and it was really, really big. We got a lot of great press from it. We had a lot of people reaching out from us. People like Mindy, Mindy Kaling commented on the partnership. So definitely a big moment. Um, sad the moment kind of got cut short by the pandemic, but it was a great experience. That's so awesome. And that's really funny how you like got in contact with her, like a divide and conquer method. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what has been your favorite aspect of running a fashion company? It kind of has to go with what I said earlier about having so many hats while running it, right? When it comes to running a fashion company, yeah, a big chunk of it is designing and designing the product, but there's also the chunk of it that's being a social media manager. There's also the chunk of it that's figuring out what's wrong with the Shopify website or taking product photography or being a salesperson, right? There's so many different things you have to do to make it all come together in the right way. And I love how I'm not doing the same thing every day and how I'm constantly learning new things, constantly doing new things. And I think that's maybe not specific to just a fashion brand, but for me, that's my favorite part of building Sony so far. 
Yeah, and it's really awesome to like kind of just dive into like the entrepreneurship role and kind of just the hats like you're saying going into that. So that's really awesome. So kind of the last question I want to dive into, what's one piece of advice that you could offer someone starting a business? This is very cliche, but I would just say to do it, right? And obviously you have to be very strategic about the way you do it, but just start. So say if you have an idea for something, maybe start by creating a prototype in your home and trying to sell it to your closest friends and family and see how that goes. Or maybe it's just starting an Etsy shop with some products that you think are really cool that you created. I think especially when starting Sani and even continuing to run Sani, I always think about, oh, what about this? Like, I don't know if that's smart. Like, what will this person think about it? Like, am I just being dumb? Like, there's so many what ifs that you kind of just have to block away and go forward with. And then I would say the other piece of advice is to move fast, right? Don't spend so much time thinking, but do. Because starting a business is all about trial and error, right? You have to try 10,000 different things before figuring out which one works. You have to be on your toes, continuing to try different things, not spending too much time on something, but also not spending enough time on something. So I would say just do it. And if you're going to do it, move fast while you do it. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. That reminds me of that, like saying like 10,000 hours makes you like proficient in one thing. So kind of like 10,000 times of trying something, you're bound to get it right at least once. Yeah, hopefully. (laughs) Hopefully, fingers crossed. Ritika, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you for having me. It was so fun. Thanks for listening to the Multi-Passionaire Podcast. I hope that you enjoyed this episode with Ritika and I and that you gained a lot of valuable information about creating and running a fashion brand and that you can apply this to any entrepreneurial venture that you want to pursue. Be sure to head over to Apple Podcasts to give a review and stay tuned until the next episode.